Peace of looking up is to find God in all things. God is in all things. And it's amazing that when we are living in a perspective of noticing, when we're paying attention, God will sometimes catch us in a way that we do not expect. And so this morning I'm getting ready for the day and, and something happened, a moment that I just was able to, to see the presence of God in an unusual way. And I'll tell you what, it's just set the entirety of my worship experience for the moment, for the morning. I was walking through the gym and one of our kids was in there. And he noticed something that his, that his mom had done, his mom had created. And he just said, I'm so proud of my mom little kid. I'm so proud of my mom. We just said, we're so proud of you, Dad. We're so proud of you, Father God. And if you want to do it with your eyes open, feel free. If it helps you to close your eyes, do that too. But I want you to imagine that you are in the presence of God right now because you are. And you just told him that he is the best. You're so proud of him. How does he look at you? I promise you this, he doesn't look at you with a stone face. And he doesn't reject you. A smile bubbles up. Maybe even a tear in his eye. And he says, I love you so much. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, dying, so that we can know our good Father. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> As we prepare for communion this morning, I want to read you a story. It's found in Luke chapter 8 actually starts with what we would consider to be a distraction in a way. It says, on the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, one kid, who was about 12 years old, was dying. And as Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by a crowd. And a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years. Same length of time this little girl had been alive. She had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. And she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched just the fringe of his robe. And immediately the bleeding stopped. Twelve years of suffering was over. 
Who touched me, Jesus asked. Everyone denied it. Peter said, Master, look around. Huge crowd. Are you kidding me, really? You're asking who touched you? But Jesus said, someone deliberately touched me. And I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realized she could not stay hidden, she was exposed. (laughs) She began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. And the whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. And he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now go in peace. How often do we use the press of everything going on around us as an excuse to not notice. You know, we just came through December. December, we should rename that month just busy, right? They don't even, busy, 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 nonstop. You're going, going, going. And it's easy in the press to not notice. Jesus is literally on his way to heal someone else. Tremendously emotional experience. I'm going with this man to see his daughter, 12-year-old, dying. There's a lot of emotion in the moment. The crowd is all around. The crowd wants stuff. And a woman just reaches out and touches, and Jesus notices. He notices. Our word for the year is look up. And during January... We're just going to, we're trying to notice how we notice. Do you notice? Are, Are you just driving through life and not seeing anything around you? There's a lot of beauty around you. Tons of beauty. There's a lot of pain around you. Tons of pain. There are people reaching out to touch and, and do we notice? Jesus noticed. That day, two daughters got healed. Not just one. Two daughters got healed. As Jesus took the time to notice. And so I want to encourage you again this week to just continue using that word. Look up. It's going to hit you at weird times. You won't think of it every moment. But there's going to be a moment that you're going to go, oh yeah, look up. Boom. What do you notice? When you, when you actually take the time to stop and think. God is all around me. He's trying to speak in this moment. He's trying to call my attention to him. What do you notice? And so we're going to take a moment to be quiet, even here in the quiet and the darkness, to see what we notice, to see the way we notice God. Maybe maybe your noticing will just come from what we've just experienced, and you'll just sit in that for a couple more moments as you think about the goodness of your Father and how you're overwhelmed by His goodness. There's some noticing that's going to come to your attention in the next minute. And then when the minute comes to an end, we've been joining in this practice for this year of we're going to go right into the Lord's Prayer We have the words on the screen so that we have some degree of unison in them because we've all learned this in different traditions. If that's still a comfortable place for you, you know, if you want to say trespasses or whatever, feel free. I know that's that's the way your heart talks. That's okay. There's no problem with that. But for the rest of us that maybe either don't know the prayer or something like that, we want it up there. My hope is that if we do this enough, eventually we won't have to look at a screen to say it. We'll be able to look straight to our Father and pray these words. So let's be quiet and see what we notice. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Brian's here, but I'm alone again. The sidekick has work to do in the second service. So he'll get back up here eventually. Uh, This is the end of our, our kids, our kids being home from school. It's been so fun to have our kids home from college. Nate's actually on his way back this afternoon and a number of others are either gone already or on their way back. It's, been, it's just been really good to have our, our families all regathered uh, during this uh, Christmas season to see the way that God is. God's growing our kids, really, uh, just doing some amazing things in their hearts, uh, growing them to be more like Him. So our servers are going to come and receive the offering. Let me share a, a few things that are, are going on around here. One is, one is this nice, beautiful sheet of opportunities to get involved in a group. And uh, today is the day that groups officially launch. There are some even starting today. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's too late. We'd love you to go ahead and get signed up. And even if come next week you're like, oh, I should have done that and you've missed the first one, that's okay. Uh, we had our group leaders two weeks ago gather here during the service to give us highlights of their groups. And you can go back and, and watch that uh, Watch that online and see what the different offerings are. But they're just there are some really incredible opportunities there, and I, I want to encourage you. Um, the, the topics are just they're interesting. They're 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 good. They they get us places. Some of them that that we've not gone before. Really really good stuff. And at the same time, the reason that we do groups, the prime reason, is not simply the gathering of information. It's the opportunity to be in relationship with each other. And it's really a great, a great moment for us to be able to gather and be with each other. I've had a couple of uh, be with moments this week that have just, they've really been, they've really been impactful for me. I mean, one was just Thursday night gathering with a, a worship team who was just having fun together and uh, enjoying each other and, and worshiping together. It's, it's fun to gather with the different serving teams that we have around the church and watch the way that they really enjoy each other. And then yesterday we had the West membership seminar. And I, uh, part of what impressed me so much is, you know, God's just bringing some really, really great people to our church right now. They had a chance to uh, talk with them in this large group. They shared why they came the first time and why they came back. And uh, I just, I love, I love who God is gathering in this place right now. And the realization that, um, you know, God brings you here now to do something unique that he created in his mind before the foundations of the world for you to do. And so I love the fact that we have people gathering here right now that are going to bring out this just absolutely unique expression of what God intends to do uh, in his world. So uh, that happens through relationships. We get those opportunities through relationships. And so I, I want to encourage you to get signed up for a group. You also have that chance to, uh, to get signed up for the women's retreat, which ironically is what? Better together. Talking about the importance, again, of, of relationship and being together. So I'll leave you to read the rest, and uh, it's all on your sheet that you get, get every Sunday. Uh, we want to get into our teaching time today, and we're going to be looking at the book of Judges. And as we look at the book of Judges, I, I suspect that this is, this is one of those books, you know, that 
you kind of think, if you're going to, if you're going to start, if you're going to just start somewhere reading in the Bible, you never read the Bible before, and you thought, I know what book I'm going to start with. I'm going to start with the book of Judges. You might read the book of Judges and go, I'm kind of done with the Bible. This is, what is going on here? What is this all about? It's, it's a, it's a strange book in a lot of ways. There are a lot of things that happen that, that you need to know a little bit more. It's not enough to just kind of read it and move on. You need to understand some background in order to understand what's happening in that particular area. So we're looking at this this week and next week. And then the week after, we're going to take time to look at that, that tiny four-chapter book of Ruth. I love Ruth. I love that book so much. And so I know you're going to enjoy uh, exploring that together uh, on that Sunday. The period of Judges takes place right at the end of uh, Joshua right at the end of Joshua's reign, so to speak. So, so he dies, and there is no king named. There is no, there is no successor named at that moment. Uh, God has this intention with his people. He wants them to just live in relationship with him. So unlike any other nation on earth, he's not going to name a president, an emperor, a king. He, he just wants them to re- live in relationship with him and for him to be their king, for him to be their God, and for them to be his people. And, and the term for that is a theocracy. It's a theocracy. This is God's intention. This is what he desires for his nation. Now, during this period, he does have a human face of leadership, and that human face is called a judge. Now, when we think judge, we think black robe, we think speeding ticket. We think, we think, oh, we might, you know, whatever your favorite TV judge is, you get that idea of judge in your mind. You just kind of got to wipe that out for a moment because that's, that's not what these judges were at all. There are really three aspects of what it meant to be a judge in the book of Judges. First, they were kind of, they were the political face of the nation. They were the political leader. Uh, they'd always be pointing to God as the prime leader, but they were the ones that were providing the, the administrative direction for the nation. They also serve, we'll see, as a, as a military deliverer. So the people would end up in, in a real situation, in a real mess, and God would send one of these judges as a person to deliver them uh, from the mess that they were in. And then the third thing we see about judges is they were, they were agents of God's power and quite often agents of just incredible supernatural power, things that they could not have done on their own. And it was God's way of saying, I'm leading this, not you. I'm still in charge. I'm the king, I'm the Lord, and you are simply my servant, uh, the face of, for, the, for the people, the face of leadership for the people during this time. So we meet 12 different judges in the book of Judges. And as you look at the, the list behind me, uh, you can divide them into major and minor judges. And major and minor isn't to say that, that six were really important and six were nothing, but it's simply to say there are six that for some reason God decided to give us a lot more of their story. And the other six, it just kind of passes very quickly. We also find with the judges that initially, after a judge does his or her work, there's a period of peace. But as the judges go along, more and more you see that the periods of peace decline. There is not as much peace after each judge. So, so it gives you an idea of, of who the judges were and their role that some are emphasized more than others. 
Now, there are two verses in this book that give us a sense of the climate, the spiritual climate of the nation at that time. The first is found in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. It says, after that generation died, so a generation passes, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. This isn't thousands and thousands and thousands of years later. This is a short time between entering the land supernaturally with water parting and a group saying, God who? Jehovah who? They don't even, that short a time, they go from being people who follow God to people who do not, do not even acknowledge him or remember the mighty things he's done. The other climate verse in this book is Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever was right in their own eyes. There's spiritual anarchy. They just, they make up their own Bible. They make up their own rules. They do it their own way. They say, forget God as leader. I am the Lord of my life. I am the leader of my life. I'm going to do whatever I want. Overall, the temperature is pretty icy. I really believe the book of Judges is one of the sadder books in the Bible. It really is. I mean, I don't know about you, but there are times that I think, if manna fell on my grass and I could go collect it, I believe in God the rest of my days. I mean, if, if, if I were driving along and there was water in front of me and some guy stood out with a stick and vroom the water parted and I said, who are you? And he said, Moses, I serve God. I'd say, and I serve your God. Boom, period, done. We believe that if we saw miracles, we would never drift away from God. These people saw miracles and they drifted away from God. We see miracles and we drift away from God. There are things God's done in your life, I promise you, that in the moment you said, that is miraculous. And just a short time later, we say, God who? God who? It's one of the sadder books in the Bible as we see this, this torch of faith just die out. It just dies out when people decide not to focus on the beauty of what God has done. So what we're going to label this is spiritual entropy. We all enter into a state in life of spiritual entropy, where, where the heat, the intensity, the desire of our spirituality just starts to wane and drift and grow cold. What is entropy? Well, I'm a theologian, not a scientist, so I have to read this. The process of running down or a trend toward disorder. Believe it or not, any, everything left to itself eventually runs down. Everything tends toward disorder. We, can, we could ask everybody in this room from, from engineers to people that have worked at the nuke plant, they'll tell you this is, this is part of the law of nature. This is the way life works. Things left to themselves eventually run to disorder. And the same is true for our spiritual lives. When we do not maintain our spiritual lives, they run to disorder. Now, now some of you are thinking, I don't know that I believe that. When's the last time you entered your child's room? Things without your pressure tend toward disorder, don't they? Do you have junk drawers in your kitchen? I recently reorganized our junk drawers in our kitchen. I put dividers in and everything else because I'm tired of opening the drawer and playing, where'd it go? You know? And I promise you, 
in no time, we're going to be back to where to go. Not because we're messy people, but because every day we don't open the junk drawer and go, get back in your place, get back in your place. We do this once in a while, let's get back in order. And it's funny, we do the same thing in our spiritual lives. We don't, we don't always look at it every day. We open the drawer every once in a while and we go, huh, it's a mess. I better do something with this. It's time, it's time to straighten it out. Entropy happens in our lives and it happened in the life of God's people. So we come to this decisive moment where God is saying, I am your God. I want you to follow me. I want you to worship me. I'm going to be your king. The people at this point, they have so much potential so much potential. Can you imagine a nation who didn't have a physical ruler but always acknowledged God as their ruler? This is such a moment of potential. But everything, everything falls apart. And they miss God's plan for them. The very best that he had for them, everything goes from bad to worse. So what I'd like to look at is something that's commonly called the judge's cycle. If you've ever studied this book before, I promise, you've talk, I promise you you've heard of it or you've talked about it. I, I hear this, the judge's cycle, and it takes me back to seventh grade Sunday school, Mrs. Creason in the basement of First Baptist in North Tonawanda. I can see it clear as day. I'm not kidding. The wooden divider wall right next to us, the metal chairs that were quite uncomfortable because the plastic thing had ripped out, and now there were little holes where you could poke your finger and make something that seemed like a blister while you were sitting in Sunday school. Oh, look, I have a blister. It was so fun. We did great things in that class. There was stained glass right in front of us, even though it's in the basement, stained glass. And then this stone wall, and on the wall, Mrs. Creason had gooed a chart. And the chart had a thing that was called the judge's cycle. And I literally remember her walking through every stage of this cycle and warning us that this could be you. This could be you. Now, lots of people use lots of different words to describe the cycle. I had to alliterate. Okay, so... It starts with a season of contentment. We're just, we're in a good place. Have you ever found yourself in kind of a spiritual good place? You just kind of go, wow, it doesn't get better than this and it'll never get worse. I'm just, ah, I'm just going along with God. Everything is fantastic. And it's funny that in, in seasons of contentment, we don't think we need to do any maintenance. It's all good. Why? I don't. I don't care about my car when it's, when it's not got a problem. I care about my car when Nate says, hey, the oil light came on the other night. Ooh, what's that all about? Oh, yeah, we haven't changed it for 4,000 miles. That's a problem, uh, 4,000 after overdue. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a problem. When we're content, we don't think about maintenance. So it's funny how quickly contentment leads to complacency. We're not working on it. We're not trying. We're just thinking this is all happening naturally. And so we become complacent in our walk, which is what happened for the people as well. They came to a place of just saying, hey, this is great. All good. We're fine. It's weird that complacency eventually leads to areas of compromise in our life. We, we start to test out where we, can, where we can do the wrong thing and we're not going to get a lightning bolt from heaven. Where, where, can we, where can we kind of try this or try that? And, huh, I still seem to be spiritually okay. We do this when we diet, right? You, you, you go along with Marie Osmond, you lose 50 pounds, all's great. And you're thinking, I'm going to be like this forever. And then you see that salted caramel brownie and you go, well, just one won't hurt. And a year later, you're signing up for Oprah's program. And, you know, you just keep going 
because you start to, it's not like you pig out all in one day. It's just that one little brownie, right? One little brownie, you compromise. Now for them, the next one, it led to captivity. It led to captivity. A nation would come in and take them captive, and it was a season of extreme pain and heartache. And I promise you, in your season of captivity, you look back at contempt and you go, what happened? Everything was so good. What happened? And if you're, if you're noticing, you start to see my contempt became, became complacency and my complacency became compromise and now I'm in a mess. And when we're in a mess, what we often do is we cry <laughs> and we cry out. I need help, God. I can't get out of this on my own. And this is what the people did. They'd cry out, save us, God. Get us out of this situation. We do not like this experience. Get us out of here. And God in his mercy again and again says, all right, grabs us by the hand, pulls us out of the pit, and gives us the deliverance we were looking for. In this case, God would give them a judge. He would give them a human being who would come along as their political leader, as an expression of God's power, and he would pull them out of their mess. He'd pull them out of their captivity. The crying worked. God pulls them out. And guess where they end up? Content. Content. This is good. God is so good. And, and sometimes it's the last 20, 30 years, and things would be going along. What we find basically is, about a generation who saw the judge work would pass and a new generation would rise up and guess what? They forgot. They forgot the goodness of God. They forgot the working of God and they drifted through this again and again. We see this cycle happen numerous times in the book of Judges. Sherry, bring up the chart. Here's, here's the different cycles that take place throughout this book. You see the cycle. You see who the oppressor was. You see how long the oppression lasts. I mean, one of them lasts 40 years. 40 years they're oppressed by the Philistines. You see who the, who the major judge was who came in and provided the deliverance, as well as the peace that followed that particular uh, time. I don't know. You know, you kind of think of a little boy, little girl, you're trying to teach him what hot and cold is, and this little boy or little girl loves to touch the stove, you know, just is longing for, what's that blue light all about? That little boy or little girl goes up and touches it. It usually only takes one, right? Only takes one, and little boy or little girl says, not doing that again. I have learned my lesson. That blue light is hot. I don't want to touch that. And for some reason, spiritually, we don't get it. We, we think that if we touch the blue light, we'd never go there again. And yet I promise you, if you were to look at your own life, you've probably seen that this cycle has happened more than once, that you went from, from contentment to captivity, you cried out, and once again God rescued, rescued you and you thought, I'll never go there again, only to find yourself once again in a season of captivity. This is how it works. When we put no effort into our spiritual life, when we put no pressure against the things that want to overtake us, this is how it works. And before you know it, we find ourselves captive and crying out once again. So what I'd like to do is spend the remainder of the time talking about just the signals of entropy. How, how do we know that we might be entering into an entropy state? 
How do we know that things may be falling apart, even though we're content right now, even though it seems like things are going well and we might have even grown a little bit complacent? How do we know that trouble is on the horizon? The first sign of spiritual entropy in the book of Judges is when we do not passionately and consistently impart our faith to the next generation. We just assume that because they drive with us to church, they're getting it. That just because we we put them in the right spiritual situations, they're getting it. I mean, it's one of the sadder verses in the Bible, Judges 2.10, that basically says a generation died and literally the next generation did not acknowledge God and did not recognize his work. Do you remember the whole stone pile at at the Jordan River? What was that intended for? Point at the rocks and say, don't forget this. Don't forget what happened here. I think sometimes we kind of assume that our kids are getting it. The next generation is getting it. We don't have to do a lot of pointing. We don't have to do a lot of that. They were there. They saw it, right? They understood it. But we're the ones that have the responsibility with the next generation. Not just, not just our physical children, but our spiritual children. We're the ones that have the responsibility with the next generation to say, come and see what God has done. I, I don't know. Maybe sometimes you get tired of me talking about Christmas Eve 2014. But I'll tell you what, I never want you to forget that night. I never want you to forget that night. We had gone through an incredible wilderness season. It was hard. It was difficult. And we came out on the other side with a miracle from the hand of God. And it would be easy for our kids to just go throw a ball in a gym or sit in this room and go, yeah, this is neat, whatever. No, this, this was God at work in his people. And we need to be the people who are constantly coming back and saying, God has been alive and active in our family They forgot to do it. They forgot to tell the kids. They forgot to tell the next generation that God had been active in their family. In our baby dedications, family dedications, we refer time and time again to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And you must commit yourself wholeheartedly to the commands I'm giving you today. He goes on to say, repeat them again and again with your children. Talk about it along the way, while you're at home, while you're, at ro- while you're on the road, when you're getting out of bed, when you're going back to bed. Tie them on your hands, wear them on your foreheads as reminders, write them on the doorposts of your hearts and on your gates. Have constant reminders all the time, not just verses hanging on the wall, oh, that's beautiful, but even symbols, piles of rocks that you're able to point to and say, remember when God did that for our people, when, remember when God did that for our family. Do you remember constantly pointing back? These people forgot to point. They forgot to share the wonders of what God had done. And for the next generation, it was completely lost. Spiritual entropy doesn't begin with the whole generation wandering away from God. It begins with a generation who is not passionate enough to inspire their children to seek the face of God. Spiritual entropy happens when our faith becomes joyless. And our kids say, why would I want that? I don't see any difference over there. Why would I want that? And our kids drift and they go try to find other things that will bring the satisfaction that God was supposed to bring. 
And so a complacency grows in us. And that is then what we pass on to the next generation. So it's not enough simply to quote verses and pile up rocks. They need to see the passion we have in our faith. They need to see the passion we have for our God, that he is a difference-making God. Cause number two, when we focus on our abilities, our strength, and our status to accomplish God's purposes. In the book of Revelation, this would be referred to as the book of the Church of Laodicea. Church of Laodicea that basically said, we got this, God. We got this, God. We're good. We have the cash. We have the people. We have the talent. We have the resources. Go take care of someone else. We can handle this, God. We're okay. And God says, you don't get it. You can't handle anything. You can't handle anything without me. You want, want me to prove it? Let's drive your checkbook and see how good. Vroom. And he puts us in a place of tremendous, dis, uh, of tr- of tremendous uh, yeah, you got to rely on him. That's the word I'm looking for, God. You, you, dependency. He puts us in a place of tremendous dependency. Reli- that's not in the script. I'm not kidding. I could not think of the word. He makes us depend on him in realization that we thought we had it and we don't. And so he comes to Gideon. Ah, the story of Gideon. Great story. Great story. He comes to this guy who's out threshing. He says, mighty warrior, you're going to go save the people. And Gideon says, who, me? Now, on one hand, I appreciate his humility. Nothing worse than somebody who says, about time. I've been waiting. About time you notice, God, your gift was right here all the time. He says, who, me? I have no power. I come from the least of the tribes. Nobody's going to listen to me. They're not going to listen to me. And what does God say? Am I not sending you? He doesn't say, I came to you because I read your resume and dang, we got to have you on the team. He says, I'm sending you. Let's see what you, nobody from nowhere can do when, when I empower you. But entropy for us happens when we think we got this, God. We got it handled. We don't need you. We think we have the strength to accomplish what we need to do. We think we have enough money. We can manage it. We can handle it. We can do it. God says, no, you got to understand that's that's not the way the walk of faith works. It's not the way the walk of faith works. The walk of faith recognizes that apart from him, we can do nothing. And with him, we can do amazing things. So Gideon, I mean, he's, he's terrified in all this, right? He says, God, prove it to me. And he goes through this whole fleece thing, which is pretty incredible. You know, put the cotton ball out, let, let the cotton ball be wet, let the ground be dry, let the ground be wet, the cotton ball be dry. He goes through this whole thing. And we kind of look at that and go, this, this is how I'm going to know God's will for my life from here forward. I got to go to Walgreens and buy some cotton. And I'm just going to, I'm going to cotton ball God all the time. Please understand, please understand that this was not the moment of Gideon's greatest strength. God had already said, I'm going to do this. And Gideon's saying to God, prove it. Instead of saying, I trust you. I love uh, this Ken Davis, Christian comedian, good guy. He's talking about the fact that one day he's driving and he sees a bakery and he's like, God, if I'm supposed to stop, let it, let a slot come open. Let a slot be open. He drove around seven times and eventually a slot was open, right? <laughs> It's hilarious. This is what we do with the cotton balls. Best three out of five. Best four out of seven. We, we just keep going because we didn't get the answer. Now I got the answer I want. So cotton ball. 
God wants us to be able to walk in faith without cotton balls. He wants us to be able to say, if you said it, I trust you. I don't need it. It was not an expression of trust. It was an expression of weakness and immaturity on his part that he needed God to prove what God said God would do. Spiritual entropy happens when we don't believe God says what God says he will do. And we instead say, no, I, I need to know. Even, even that, I need to know, is my way of saying this is about me. It's not about you, God. How about the third, third cause of entropy? We become so enmeshed in secular culture that we don't even notice when we adopt ungodly practices. We don't even notice. So we have a judge in chapter 11. His name is Jephthah. And he makes this rash vow to God. God, if you deliver the Ammonites into my hands, if you set my people free, that when I come home, the first thing that comes out of the door of my house, I will give to you as a sacrifice. He wins the battle. He comes home. And by the way, back then, the farm animals lived in the house, okay? So he's waiting for his favorite lamb to come out, his cow, his chicken. His daughter comes racing out. Oh, God, best two out of three? <laughs> he made a promise to God that he would sacrifice his daughter. Something the pagan nations did and something God never said do that. God never said, let's try this from here forward. Whatever comes out of your house, sacrifice it to me. Two schools of thought on what Jephthah did. Some people believe that he actually went through and followed, he, he kept his vow, he sacrificed his daughter. Others believe that he sent her off into the desert uh, to live as a virgin, and in that way he was, he was uh, symbolically sacrificing her. But you wonder, how in the world, this guy's a judge. He's kind, of, he's kind of the spiritual leader of the nation. And he's doing this whack stuff. You know, we'll read, we'll read about King David, and, and we read that he had a wife and another wife and another wife. We read about Solomon, and he had a wife and another 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 wife and another, yeah, about a thousand of them, wives and concubines. And we look at that and we go, did they not read the Bible? Did God approve of this? It's in his book. No, God did not approve of it. He said, don't. He said, one. That's it, one. And we think, how could they do that? <laughs> how can we do that? How many areas do we go along with what our culture is saying, our culture is doing, and we don't even recognize that we're just going along to get along? We may even read a verse and go, huh, I don't know how that fits with what I'm doing right now. Entropy happens when we become so enmeshed in secular culture that we don't even notice that we've adopted ungodly practices. How about a fourth? We forget and break the commitments we've made before God and before others. So one is we're, we're doing things the world calls us to. The other is we actually make promises to God and then we say, well, I had my fingers crossed, you know. I didn't, I, that, wasn't, that wasn't a real promise, God. And with that, we get into the story of Samson. Samson has taken this Nazarite vow, interesting vow. Touch no unclean thing, drink no wine or fermented drink, and never cut your hair. Kind of in a way you look at it and go, three interesting commitments, a little different, 
but they were commitments that he was to keep. And if he kept them as a Nazarite, he would have the power of God. And if he broke them, he would not have the power of God. So he kills a lion. A while later, there's honey. The bees have overtaken that carcass. And what does he do? He goes over and scoops out the honey. What's wrong with that? Nazarite, you're not supposed to touch a dead animal. Not supposed to do that. He does it. In chapter 14, he has quite a party. And I promise you, he's not the only one sober and doing the driving. And then we have the whole Delilah thing where he cuts her hair, where she cuts his hair. And you think, wow, his power was lost because his hair was cut? No. He became weak, not so much because of the length of his hair, but because of the condition of his heart. He had become reckless with the vows that he had made to God. Entropy happens when we start compromising our vows. When we have promises that we've made to God, promises we've made before other people, we've made a declaration, and then we just decide it doesn't matter as much as I thought it did to keep that particular declaration. And before you know it, we find ourselves in captivity. Cause five, when our desires and impulses begin to rule our lives rather than the Holy Spirit of God. Samson, of all of the people in the Bible, is just, he's an impulse machine. What he wants, he goes after. He just, he just goes at whatever he wants, he goes after. If he sees something, he says, I want it, I'm going to have it. If he sees a woman and says, I want her, I'm going to have her. Even if she's a prostitute, I want her, I'm going to have her. And he allows himself to simply be driven time and time again by his impulses. We need to ask, is there an area in my life where I am driven by my impulses, where my besetting sins are getting the best of me. I love the concept of a besetting sin. You won't find that, that word in the Bible, besetting, but you'll find the concept. You'll find the concept that basically says, we all have an area of weakness that is unique to us. There's something I promise you that is a unique area of weakness to you. And someone else, when you describe your weakness to them, they look at you with a glazed face. They can't imagine that you are that weak. And then they describe yours, theirs to you. And you go, what is your problem? Because we all have different areas that we've been allowed by God to receive some pressure. And that's what's allowing us to be formed into the image of Christ. That we couldn't handle being pressured by all of them. God gives us certain areas that says, this is the area that you're going to be doing some struggling. This is, this is your area to do some struggling, to do some work. And we'll have different areas where our impulses get the best of us. And it's funny, for someone else, their impulse will not get the best of them at, at all. Not at all. Many followers of Christ discovered that they struggle with, with a besetting sin. An area that the spiritual battle seems to overcome them again and again. These sins plague the lives of a lot of believers and discourage them in their spiritual life. It's a sin that in many ways tends to be convenient. They're right around us. They're, they're easy to get a hold of us. Easy to get a hold of. We struggle with that need to satisfy ourselves. We struggle with self-gratification. And the thing of it is, a lot of the things that we want in our culture, they're considered really normal. Everybody's doing it, so it's okay. But God's saying, but I said don't. But I don't want you to go there. And so we find ourselves ultimately in captivity to even something like a besetting sin. Sixth cause. 
Spiritual entropy happens when we cry out to God for help because we are facing pain, but not because we are truly sorry for our sins. We cry uncle to God. Hurts! Stop this! But are we truly repentant? Are we truly sorry for our sin? Mm, No, I just don't like the pain. The pain is important. The pain lets us know something's wrong. But we know full well from the physical world. If you're suffering a physical pain, you can take prescription drugs, you can take illegal drugs, you can take whatever you need in order to stop the pain. But what is it not stopped? The problem. Doesn't hurt, but the problem's still there. And so when we come to God and simply cry, Uncle, I can't handle the pain anymore. He's saying, I understand, but I want you to go further. I don't want you to simply have pain relief. I want you to repent. I want you to come back home. I want you to have a new beginning and a fresh start. And so entropy takes place when we cry out for help. We're oppressed. Help us. But we really don't want to fix. We just want relief. And unfortunately, that's what the people wanted. They weren't looking for a restored relationship with God. They were just, they were looking for an end to their captivity. Can we come to a place that we desire more? That we don't just want the hurt to stop, but we actually want a relationship restored with God once again. We want the contentment that comes with living in relationship with God. Let me give you one last cause, and it's found in the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. We read the verse already. I truly believe one of the sadder verses in the Bible. In those days, Israel had no king, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. I don't know why this hit me differently than it ever has before. I've always focused on the last part. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sounds very American, doesn't it? Do what you want. Who cares how it affects anybody else? Do what you want. And, and when we live in that kind of spiritual anarchy, we have a mess. And for some reason, God drew me to the beginning of the verse this time. Israel had no king. You know what that meant? Not that they had no physical king, but they had literally said, God, we don't want you either. Israel had no king. He wanted to be their king. And the book ends by saying they had no king because they had rejected him. Do we want Jesus to be the king of this place? Or do we like him to show up for the songs because that feels real good, but then we'll do our own thing? Him being the king means he's left us a book that we're supposed to live to the letter. Not pick and choose, not say, well, I'm not comfortable with that. Is he king? Is he lord of me? Is he lord of us? If he is not then Southfield has no king and everybody will do what is right in their own eyes and we will end up in captivity. I had the chance to talk through yesterday in the seminar, membership seminar the history of our church again from 1881 through to today. It only takes about four and a half hours. And so we're going through the history and what I love about our history is that there was a season at the beginning that there was such spiritual intensity for the things of God. People were reaching lost people for Christ. People had their eyes on the mission, make disciples. And what's sad is you come to this middle section where we really liked being a club 
And Jesus could come or go, it didn't matter. We loved clubbing as a church. And for several years now, that part's been gone. And I'm thrilled. But it only takes a generation for us to just become a club and church again and not be devoted to the things of God. And we need to be constantly reminding our kids and ourselves that we have a king. And his name is Jesus. And we long to serve him with all our hearts and do whatever he asks, whenever he asks, however he asks. We follow, we obey, we love him. And so Lord Jesus, and we mean Lord Jesus, we don't look to your book as a, as a manual of neat suggestions that we might want to try out on a rainy day. We look to your word as a source of life, as a guide for everything we do. We submit ourselves to you. Not because we're captive and we want to get out of our pain, but because we are in a season of contentment and we'd love to stay there. Not content with ourselves, but content with you. Please stay at the forefront of our vision. Allow this generation and the next and the next and the next and on beyond to know the beauty of what it means to be in relationship with the God of heaven. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We'll see you next week.